I want to invite you to pray with me that we would be fed by God's word today. Father, as we open up your word, give us insight, instruct us, give us wisdom, knowledge, and the ability to apply it for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that I hope you're enjoying about the book of Proverbs is how practical it is. Again, we're going to be very practical today. So practical, in fact, we're, we're going to talk about bread. Bread. Okay, I know some of y'all are like on a no-bread diet. I'm not saying it's spiritual to eat bread, but hear me out. Bread appears frequently throughout the Bible. Bread appears as a promise. The disciples get together eating bread. Jesus is eating bread. Satan tempts him to make bread. Bread is everywhere. Bread really is everywhere. Remember when I was in Egypt recently, they didn't have a lot of food. I had a ton of bread, all kinds of bread. Guys carrying pallets of bread down the street as they walked. Uh, societies that lack bread are in abject poverty because bread is this baseline point of sustenance, isn't it? We lean on God for it. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. You know what we do with that? We spiritualize it to just go, well, the bread of God's word. I think it includes that. But when you read throughout the Bible, bread often means, guess what? Bread. Like, give me this day, Father, what I need, what Bill was talking about, not the, the extra car, the bigger house, let me get that beach vacation. Not that those things are wrong, but give us this day our daily bread as, Lord, I'm leaning on you to eat to trust your promise. We say, don't worry, you'll have what you need, that I trust that. So bread is the basics. Bread represents the baseline of having what you need for life. And we use it that way too. You might, someone might say something like, you know, I don't have the fanciest job, but at least it puts bread on the table. So we lean on God, not just for a sort of spiritualized form of bread, but actual bread, okay? It's just uh, representative of what we need for life. So I want to turn your attention to a passage that's going to use bread in the beginning. We're not going to talk about bread the entire time. I was kidding. But as an entryway, thinking about how we secure the future. When you think about, will there be bread in my pantry? Will we have food tomorrow, next month? What happens if um, all of Aaron's predictions are correct and there's a big EMP blast? You know, how do we get bread? Okay, we're going to be thinking about basics. Bread and toilet paper, as we found out. Those are the two, two things that everyone's going to be clearing the shelves of. Sustenance. What's in your pantry? What are we going to eat? Okay, and throughout the Bible, there's this uh, theme of famine and drought and God opening up the heavens to counteract that and follow me and I'll supply for you. We over-spiritualize that. The Proverbs bring it right to your kitchen. What does it take to keep bread in the pantry? The Proverbs talk about that. And there's no need to spiritualize it because God is very invested in our material well-being as well, our physical well-being. He created it. We'll look at that more later. But for now, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 12. There won't be a ton of verses on the screen because mainly we're going to be in two chapters in Proverbs. You can turn there. Proverbs chapter 12. 
And we won't look at every verse in verse 12, uh, in chapter 12. There's lots here about this topic, but I'm just sort of pulling out uh, certain points just to kind of get the big picture. But here's the thing that Proverbs teaches us about planning for the future, securing the future, making sure there's bread on the table. And that is this. The wise work hard to secure the future. Hard work puts bread on the table. Like, wow, we needed a a Bible chapter to tell us that? Yes. Yes, we do. The wise work hard to secure the future. I'm in chapter 12. I hope you're there with me. Look at verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. That's a really scripturally nice way of saying dumb. We saw this verse already in chapter 20, just the ending is a little bit different. But it's essentially the same verse. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Now for many of us, we go, well, that is pretty plain. If you work the land then you make money to purchase bread. If you don't work the land, you don't make money, then you can't purchase bread. But we all know people in our own lives where this concept seems a little bit lost on them. And they get sidetracked and they start chasing worthless pursuits. They're not worthless because they're sinful. They're worthless because they don't produce bread. So is is it wrong to get really, really good at video games in your mom's basement? No, that's not wrong. When that's all you do is crack Mountain Dews and game? I mean, unless you're sponsored, unless you're so good that you're sponsored, but guess what? Then that game gets old, and you're really, really good at a game that nobody cares about anymore? You know what I'm saying? Like, where's the Sonic guy, the guy that won the Sonic competition back in the night? Like, where's that guy? I don't know. It's worthless not because it's sinful. It's worthless because it doesn't put bread on the table. What puts bread on the table? Working that land. Working that land. You might be like, well, I am hard at work. I'm hard at work at gaming. I'm hard at work at developing this hobby. I'm hard at work at playing basketball. Whatever it is that is your pursuit, what this proverb is saying is, yeah, but the hard work needs to be directed into something that is productive. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. So here's a couple things we see about diligence, right? Hard work is diligence. Diligence is hard work. A couple things real quickly that we see here in the following verses. Diligence secures upward mobility. Diligence secures upward mobility. Look at verse 24. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. So if you keep up with the worthless pursuits and you don't think about the thing that puts bread in the pantry, the guy that's spending less time on the worthless pursuits and working really hard at the productive pursuit will rule over you. We probably can think of people in our own lives, I know I can, that complain about people who get the promotion and people who get the better car and people who, yeah, but did you put in that work? It's all about what I'm supposed to get. And we blame it on different privileges in society. If there's doors open in front of you and you're not going through those doors of production, it's on you, man. 
And the ones that take those doors, maybe they have 50 more doors than you do, but they take the opportunities. You're not taking opportunities. They will rule over you, period. Now, this is a promise in Scripture. Diligence will move you up. It doesn't say you'll rule over everybody, but the, overall, the diligent workers are going to rule over the lazy guys. That's just how it works in this world. So diligence secures upward mobility, and related to that, diligence secures your kitchen. Diligence provides food. Look at verse 27, moving from bread into uh, meat. 12, 27. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Why does the slothful not roast his game? He doesn't want to put in the effort to catch it or to hunt it. That's the imagery. Slothful person will never roast his game. He's just going to have his hand out to somebody else who does the hunting. That's how he gets ruled. But the diligent man or the diligent person will get precious wealth. Why? The implication is because he goes out there and he hunts and he creates snares and he traps and he sits in the tree and he waits. He puts in the work. The hand of the diligent will rule. The diligent man will get precious wealth. The backup verses are numerous. We'll put four up on the screen. Two of them are from chapter 19, two of them from chapter 20. But here we first have uh, 1915. Now, these are all just backing up this idea of diligence versus laziness or sloth, okay? The translations vary, but I think these are pretty decent. Slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. So you see the food theme there again, right? Slothful person cast into a deep sleep, an idle person will suffer hunger. Get up a little earlier. Work a little harder. Push. Be diligent. Verse 19, chapter 19, verse 24. This, this is a problem when you use tech, y'all. It just completely disappeared. Give me a second. While that's re-downloading, I'm going to just use the screen you guys are using. So this is verse 24. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. Do you see humor in that? I think it's funny. <laughs> this food looks good, and my hand is in it, but oh, I have to actually bring it to my mouth to eat it. It's like, oh, can you feed me, honey? Can you feed me? Dump that guy. Right, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, will not even bring it back to his mouth. Look at chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard, the lazy person, the person that is the opposite of diligent. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he will seek it at harvest and have nothing. The problem with the lazy person is that they don't get the logic of just what, how life works. They didn't put in the work, and then they're there like, all right, what do we got to reap here? And it's like, well, you got nothing, bro. I got something, but I don't know where well, you've been sleeping. You've been pursuing worthless pursuits. We, if I did a whole sermon on just the lazy person, we'd see they're full of excuses. All, even when Jesus says, you know, the, the, handing out the talents and well done, good and faithful servant, well done, good and faithful servant, what did he say to the third guy? Wicked and lazy. And what did he say? Yeah, but, but I knew you were hard. I knew you were hard, so I buried it. Excuses, right? 
chapter 20, verse 13. Sleep isn't bad. Loving sleep, that's a problem. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. How simple is that? Wake up. Not for the worthless pursuits. Wake up. Work. Sleep and avoid work. That's going to come back to haunt you. All right? So we see the Proverbs over and over again smashing laziness, making fun of it even. There's another one about turning in the bed like a door on its hinges. I mean, it's, there's like humorous imagery. You're like, man, you're just like, like, get up, right? Constantly poking fun of, showing the folly of laziness, while uplifting diligence, saying diligence is what gets you bread. Diligence is what gets you meat. Diligence is what fills your kitchen and gives you that upward mobility. Now, some of us struggle with laziness and need to be reminded of the role of work. We need to be taught that work is good. God created work. When he created Adam and Eve, he gave them work to do, right? We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But others of us, maybe we need a caution on the other side because we're really driven and we do work hard. So, so far in the whole sermon, you're like, yeah, preach it. You want to, you're going to elbow somebody next to you. You're staring at your kids, whatever you're doing, to go, yeah, that's me. That's what I've been telling you. But some of us that are on that side, we work hard, we're ambitious, we're driven. We need to hear the other side of this wisdom. We need to remember that we can't, by virtue of our own work, produce our futures like we're masters of our own destiny. We're so good at work and we're so productive, we get cocky and we get arrogant. So the Proverbs also remind us, you're not in control of the future. Someone else is. The future isn't out of control. It's just out of your control. So the second thing we see here, and I'll try to move through these pretty quickly. I'm not going to break each of them down. But I want you to turn to Proverbs 16. Proverbs chapter 16. I'm going to have you turn to three chapters. So anyway, so this is the second one. Proverbs chapter 16. Here's what we're learning here. Our planning and our working is what produces and secures the future in part, but we need to keep in mind that the Lord's sovereignty will not be overruled. So this is what you see, these two themes in the Proverbs. Get to work, and you'll have bread, but don't forget, you're not the God that creates bread. Don't forget God in the process. So chapter 16, we're going to look at the first seven verses. Look at the first verse here. The plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. If you take it a strict interpretation, it's like we're puppets. And anything we say, God is just doing it. He's you know, controlling us in a way where all the bad things we do is because God made us do it. All the good things we do is because God made us do it. And his hand is just under us or above us with the strings controlling everything. And this verse doesn't exist in isolation. It exists together with other verses. If that were completely true and we were puppets, why would any verses tell you to get to work? Why would any verse call you to do anything at all? We would just go, well, if God wanted me to get out of bed, he'd pull the get out of bed string and I would do it like the puppet that I am. And that's not what it's saying. What it's reminding you of is you work and operate in a world where he does pull the strings overall. Well, which one is it? I'm not really sure how to parse it out. I don't think any of us really are. Volumes have been written on this and it's confusing. Now, some people 
We go, well, if it's me getting to work, it's my decision, it's free will. So we dump the sovereignty stuff. And then others of us, we love the sovereignty stuff. We're so captivated by those verses, we kind of forget the responsibility stuff. We want to keep the two in tension. You have a lot of plans in your heart. That's not bad. You just need to remember that what actually comes out of your mouth, we remember the, the production of the, the mouth. Remember that from the last sermon? It's not just about saying things. It's about producing things with what you say, healing people, breaking people down, building people up, ruining people. You have plans in your heart, but what actually comes out of your mouth is underneath the oversight of the Lord. The Lord produces things through us. We can't say, I put bread on the table. Even if you put in a hard week's work, you still sit and do what? Thank God for it. You don't sit there, hey, everybody, let's sit down. We're about to have a meal. Let me call my employer real quick and thank him. No, we thank God because he's over the employer. He's over the companies. He's over the stock exchange. He's over countries, right? And so the Proverbs want us to get to work, but reminding us that that work is underneath this sovereign God. Look at verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So here, Solomon's reminding us, God isn't just in control of factories and agricultural fields and farms and groceries and trucks and supply chains. He is, but he's also over your morality. In other words, work hard, but work hard knowing that an ultimate lawgiver and the inventor of true morals is watching you. Does that make sense? We, li- we work hard underneath moral oversight. So don't break rules, don't cheat, and then call it hard work. That's not hard work. That's actually going back to laziness, isn't it? Producing things through evil instead of allowing good things and righteous decisions to have their fruit. So many Proverbs back that up. I'll spare you for now. So with these in mind, we can work hard unto the Lord, not with a self-focused ambition, but with a Godward ambition, because he's over everything. Look at verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Well, which one is it? In the prior two verses, you said he's over everything. He's the one that produces everything. And then in verse 3, it's like, so get to work, because through your work, things will be established. I thought God established it. He does. Through your work. They work together somehow. We're not allowed to go, God is sovereign, I can just kind of let things go. We also don't want to go, well, God's not sovereign, so I better get to work, because if it weren't for me, bread wouldn't be on the table. Both of those are error. Then look at verse 4. We see these next verses reestablish that sovereignty piece. So it's going back, sovereignty, get to work, then back to sovereignty. Verse 4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. I'm trying to get to work, but my boss is evil. I'm trying to get to work, but my neighbor hates me. I'm trying to get to work, but my spouse isn't Christian and is making it difficult and is putting pressure on me to follow the boss's tempting offers. And this is reminding us, yeah, it's not like God is like, ooh, sorry. Even the wicked are put there for a purpose. You just read Exodus, and God tells Pharaoh, I raised you up. You thought you were Pharaoh because you were born in the right place at the right time? You thought you were Pharaoh because the Egyptians, whatever they do to say, okay, you're Pharaoh, you know? I put you there, man. You know why I put you there? So I can show through you that I rule. 
not you. This is how Joseph forgave his brothers. You guys think it was just your idea to throw me in a pit? It was also God's idea. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And that's why he's able to forgive him. Some of us, we're trapped in this inability to forgive because we just don't get God's sovereignty. It happened to you. It was wicked. It was evil. It broke you. None of that is untrue. But if we have, if serve a God who's up there kind of biting his nails, like, I know, when that was happening, I was just kind of busy. How can we ever forgive? So we see the sovereignty piece contextualizes our work. We work hard, but not outside of God. It's underneath him, and it's for him. We commit our work to the Lord, verse 3. Verse 4, we remember that the Lord is over everything, even the wicked things that we face. Even the day of trouble is designed by God. And his being over everything is what thwarts the plans of the wicked. Look at verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. The person who thinks their work produces everything, the person who thinks all they have to do is work harder and they can get whatever they want, they start going to church less, they start reading the Bible less, they're not as, they're not as thirsty for God because they're so stinking affluent. It says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. That's verse 5 telling you that verses 1 through 4 are helping position you into this place of humility to work in humility, submitting it and committing it to the Lord. Work hard, not lazy, but also understanding you're not the master of your own destiny. That's righteousness. That's wisdom. Outside of that, we're arrogant. We're arrogant to either think that God is not in control or we're arrogant to think that because God is in control, I don't have to do anything. Both of those are arrogance, and the Lord hates it. And then I want you to see in verses 6 and 7, and this is really important, this is the difference between the wise person and the foolish person. It's not work. The difference between the wise person and the foolish person is not sinner versus non-sinner. The difference between the wise person and the foolish person is not sinner versus non-sinner. It's atoned versus not atoned. Check it out in verse 6 and 7. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. If we had just verse 7, it'd be like when a man's ways please the Lord... Uh, when you live your life perfectly, when you are never arrogant, when you are always humble, when you commit everything to the Lord without mistake, without error, then God is on your side. And even your enemies, even the wicked in the day of trouble, he just pushes them over like the bullies that they are. He'll, just like Exodus, he just rains plagues on them until they submit to his sovereignty, and he gets you through the wilderness. But that wouldn't be the full picture because we would be tempted toward the arrogance of going, see, I produce righteousness. I am better than that fool. He's lazy. I get to work, you idiot. Look at my life. I'm so good, right? But then verse 6 reminds us, no, 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 we would all be fools. We would all be fools. We all have iniquity. What is the difference? He says, by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Now, we could read that and go, by my own steadfast love and my own faithfulness, 
my iniquity, my sin is atoned for. But as you push through the Bible, we find out a much larger picture, don't we? That our atonement doesn't come by my steadfast love and faithfulness, but the steadfast love and faithfulness of our Lord Yahweh that the Psalms constantly call us to praise. It's his steadfast love that endures forever, not mine. And he does that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Lord works his sovereignty over all things, but as Paul reminds us in Romans 8.28, many of you know it, he works all things together for good to those who love God. So these are people that have been redeemed, placed into a position where God is now going to work for them, through them, even the hard times, even the difficult things, to push through the day of trouble. And so we know our own faithfulness won't cut it. We look to a perfect Savior who atones. We don't have to look at this and go, man, I have a pattern of foolishness. I have a pattern of iniquity. Atonement covers that and brings you into a place where now, in relationship with God, at peace with God, you can get to work and do the things that you're supposed to do. Loving and fearing God is a result of God working in us first, Then he puts us to work while also working all things together, going ahead of us, like Jesus going ahead of the disciples in Galilee. God does that with his sovereignty. He goes ahead of us, and he makes things fall into place because we are his atoned, forgiven people. Think of how practical that is. It doesn't mean just sanctification, but at work, in your your job, in your home, in your household, in your relationships. God goes ahead and blesses and works all things together, not some things. All things together. You're like, but it doesn't seem like he's working it all together because I'm having a day of trouble right now. Read the text. Even the day of trouble, God put it there. Why? To work it together into a bigger tapestry. Imagine watching a movie. Somebody's like, it's your favorite. It's my favorite movie. Let's watch it. And there's no antagonist. There's no bad guy. It would be a boring movie. It'd be boring. You've got to have something to conquer, something to go, ooh, what's going to happen? Oh, that happens. That's how victory is secured. That's a good movie. That's a good novel. That's a good book. That's a good biography. God puts the day of trouble and weaves it into this pattern for Christians. Romans 8, 28 reminds us, or this psalm, for those who know steadfast love. They know what it's like to be rescued from iniquity. That's the wise person. Now, what does the wise person do? You're atoned. You're in, you're in, you're in the covenant. What do you do? You work hard. And that's how you put bread on the table. That's what it says. Then we learn this takes knowledge. The wise work hard to secure the future. Here's what we've learned so far. The wise work hard to secure the future, but knowing that God holds the future and these truths work together. So as we get into it, we realize it takes knowledge to work hard. We, We often say work smarter, not harder. The Proverbs are like, how about both? You know what I mean? Like, put in the effort, but think, plan, strategize. So it's not just about daily grinding it out at work, just working hard, just working hard. Sit and think, is there a better way to do that? Is there an easier way to do that? Am I doing things backwards? Last place I'll take you is Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24. We'll push through this somewhat briefly, but I want to make sure that we capture what's happening here. I think there's a lot of practical help in it. Proverbs 24. Again, a ton here, but we'll just look at select portions. We're going to look at, um, let's look at 3 through 7 here. 
It says, by wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. So what does it take to build a house? What does it take to establish your house? Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, verse 4. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. So there's the work, but then knowledge. Work hard and smart, right? Verse 5. Verse 6. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there's victory. Wisdom is too high for a fool, and the gate he does not open his mouth. So here you have somebody who's conquering. He changed from a, a, a bread analogy and then a hunting analogy, and now it's a war analogy. That's a different sermon. Does, does God approve of wars and all this? It's an analogy right here, okay? Because I don't want to answer that whole other sermon. But it's a picture of someone who's waging war with strategy. You might be a king. You might be a ruler. You've got all these people at your disposal, but you still have the wisdom to bring some counselors around. Like, what should I do here? Not, I'm the general. Have you fought as many battles as me? Why don't you shut up and follow me? It's, it's hey, gain some counsel here. And that assures the victory. So it's not just might. We have swords. We have shields. What do I need counselors for? It's you have swords, you have shields, and the counselors work hard and work smart, and that produces the victory. And the guy that doesn't do that combo is the fool that at the gate doesn't even have anything to say. See? All right, so a prime example of knowing how to work hard and how to secure your future Remember, he opens up in those first couple verses that we looked at, Proverbs 24, 3, talking about building a house, establishing a house. Okay? I want to turn your attention to just one verse, and we'll, we'll end with that, which is 24, 27. Uh, chapter 24 starts going off into kind of like one-offs toward the end of the chapter. Like each verse is kind of about something a little bit different. Verse 27 returns to this theme of building a house. Now let's take a look at it. And when it's talking about building a house... It's referring to a literal house, but also what that house represents. What's in that literal house? Family, people, spouses, kids, servants or employers, right? You've got your family, you've got your farm, you've got your pets, you've got your animals, you've got the horses and the oxen or whatever it is in this time that would make this house a profitable house, a sensible house. So it's about family, home, and it says, prepare your work outside. Literally in the Hebrew it says, prepare your work in the outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. There's a few things I want to point out. It doesn't say that working outside, you have to do that for years and years before considering settling down. But it does push against the idea of sort of rushing into marriage and kids ahead of establishing yourself. See? It does talk about the order of things. It's not that one is better than the other. In fact, I think throughout Scripture you see that the home is so important and so central to God's picture of the gospel as he proclaims it to the world. It's the order of things. And we might be like, man, God wants me to have a family and jump right into the family situation. You haven't established yourself yet. So here's how to just break it down. Can you make bread yet? Do you make bread? Some guy shows up and he's supposedly wanting to date your daughter. What are some of the first questions you should ask? It's not hairstyle, music choices. Ask your ex-cop buddy to pull up his record. 
Find out, does he make bread? No? What are you dating for? It's not that dating is wrong, and it's not that marriage is bad. It's the order of things. Establish your work first so that you can then support that house. If that's not established yet, let's not be thinking about calling the architecture quite yet, the architect quite yet. So here's some couple quick points of application, especially for the young person starting out. Young men, you're not ready to consider marriage if you're not reasonably established. So instead of focusing on the eyes, the hair color, what kind of hobbies does she share with me, get to work. Be the kind of husband that can have a wife, then you can start thinking wife. For young women, I'm just throwing this out there. I, you know, if guys are like always going on like Dutch on dates, and they always want to split everything's halvesies, everything's halvesies, and they're pushing you, young woman, to establish yourself before he marries you, you're probably dating a fool. It's not popular to divide men and women along these lines, but hear me, I'm not saying women can't work. We're going to get to that in the last chapter of Proverbs. That'll be fun. We'll get to that. What I am saying is the guy that uses the girl to help get himself established is using marriage to prepare his field for the home instead of following the order of this proverb, which is establish the field, then think about the home. You don't want that guy. The second thing we notice in this verse is it wants us to get the order of home and career right. The chronological order is the reverse of the order of importance. I'm going to say that again. The chronological order, what you do first in time, do this first, then that, is inverse to what's more important. This first, in order to do that, not because this is more important, but because that's more important. And you can't support the home, build the home, establish the home, support your spouse, support your kids, raise your kids, hire employees, unless you've got this establishment first. But that establishment is to support the home. The home isn't there to support the establishment. Now, what are some of the implications of that order, getting that order correct? I think, and I'll say this, the home isn't the only legitimate reason to work. It's not like, well, I'm single and I don't have a home, and I'm not thinking about marriage right now, so worthless pursuits time. No. But the home is a big reason for work. And certainly, why you're working when you have a home is to establish that home. Now, here's some quick points of application. Implications, right? The wisdom of this verse means it's foolish to move to another city, move to another state, move to another country to improve your career while it hurts your family. Career is for the home, not home for the career. And those of us that I mentioned, we're workaholics, we're ambitious, we've got drive, and we're like, man, if I make this move, it's a different state. Where will the kids go to school? The school district's horrible. Oh, I mean, I went to a horrible school. I mean, hey, hey, it's life. Well, I, I don't have any friends. You make new friends, honey. And she just sees dollar signs in the guy's eyes. That's dumb. The career supports the home. And we start convincing ourselves, well, but if I make this move, I've got more career, bigger career. We could build a bigger home. It's not the size of the house, right? What's good for the family? Have you checked out the school districts? Have you checked out, firstly, what churches are around there? 
Oh, there aren't any. Oh, we'll just zoom in CFC. Don't make me cut the feed, man. <laughs> the career is for the home, not the home for the career. Or maybe that career move does both. Maybe it is a good career move. But you've got to let the dollar signs disappear from your eyes for a minute and really assess the situation with honesty. And this is where guidance can help with others that can kind of see the big picture. Is that move going to pull your family away from a solid church? Is it going to take up your Sundays and now you can't go to church? How's the, the head of the home going to be spiritually established if he's always at work and just mom and the kids go to church? And I'll tell you as my own personal t- testimony, don't raise a family where the mom and kids are the only ones that go to church. It's so painful and it's confusing. The guys need to be leading the church on the spiritual front. We have a lot of guys that will amen not being lazy when it comes to work, but when it comes to spiritual diligence, sometimes we're quite lost and we relegate it to other people in the house. Another implication is that this might mean uh, not taking a promotion if that promotion demands more out of you than your family can do without. If that promotion demands more out of you than your family can reasonably do without, it might not be wise to take that promotion. I'm not against promotions, and I want to make this clear. I'm actually quite for promotions. I think you should take every single promotion that comes your way if you can. Some of you were in that workshop with Eric Brown this weekend at the men's retreat where he emphasized the importance of work and being really good at work. If you're a Christian, you represent Christ in the workplace, you should be good at it. You should show up on time. You should go the extra mile once in a while. And that should be reflected in this upward mobility we talked about briefly earlier, but not at the expense of the health and care of the home. Not at the expense of the family. You're working to establish that home, not the other way around. So this passage pushes not only against getting the order wrong, but also rushing into reversing that order, especially when you're young, we're energetic, we want to do things sooner than later. God wants you to have but not before you're ready for them. So the wisdom is basically do this first, then have that. It's not that I, hate, I don't want you to have that. It's do this first, then you get to have that. It's putting things in order. And if we apply this across all our endeavors, we'll be planning our wives, our lives wisely. We'll be planning out our home, our careers with wisdom. So real quick ones. Don't date unless you're marriage material. Cover that. Here's another one. Don't aspire to an office in the church unless you've, I don't know, read the Bible? Discipled a guy? Don't book that interview for that job if you haven't researched them. Figured out what questions to ask, what they're about, how would you fit in? That's how practical the Proverbs are, right? How do you go to a job interview? I don't know. What do you got? That's dumb. Go establish something first. Figure something out. Then go do that endeavor. Employers, employers, don't book a meeting where you're going to guide your workers on what to do and you haven't put an agenda together first. How many of you have been in interminable meetings and you have no idea what this is for? That kills your workers, right? So if you've got people under you, like, have a plan and help them out with it. Establish the plan first, then have the meeting for productivity, not the other way around. These are just ones that popped in my head, right? Don't sign that car loan if you haven't already figured out what your payment limit is and how that's going to figure into your budget. Go in there with a locked in, like, this is my number. Now, don't say it. Don't go in there saying it yet. 
But you need to have your number locked in. How do you get that number? Go figure it out. Then you can go purchase the car. It's not that you shouldn't have a car. There's wisdom in doing something first, planning, getting that counsel, doing something with wisdom, and then going and pulling the trigger on something. I don't know. Don't adopt that pet before researching that breed or researching what it's like to have a pet. And find out two years later, eh, I'm not a cat person, and the cat ends up in the thing, right? Here's what more is really pertaining to life in the church especially, but don't confront someone about a sin you perceive in them without first assessing the situation. Are you guilty of the same sin? Are you clear on the matter? Are you sure that they did that sin? Are you even sure that it is a sin? Figure those things out. Then approach. Then approach. So this, this verse slows us down. Work hard, but work smart. And part of that smartness is assessing situations, getting wisdom, getting information, before pulling the trigger. I often see people make really big decisions, and the last people that they announce that decision to are the wisest people in their lives. It could have cautioned them. A lot of us have been down those roads before. So you don't have to broadcast everything in your life, but the the wisdom of gaining counselors, surrounding yourself with wisdom before making decisions is part of how we get the field figured out first, then establish the house. Work hard and work smart. There's so much here. I just want to remind you that God loves work. He created work in the garden, and he oversees our work as exiles in this world, but still in this world. He coached Israel. What are we supposed to do in Babylon? It's not Israel. What do we do in Babylon? Be good citizens. Be the best. You wear my name. And let the Babylonians take notice. Like, wow, it's person's a good worker. That's what he wants for Christians, to be in the world, be diligent, and exude the attributes that God, of God's wisdom. Working hard, and working smart, and that puts food on the table. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you that, um, I, well, we get saved, we don't just get zapped out of this world and go to some other place, we stay in this world and we, and we have to work and we have to eat. We have to interact with coworkers and employees and employers. Uh, we work across all different kinds of fields and careers. A lot of us are just starting out building our homes or that's near in the future. A lot of us have been building our homes for a long time. Uh, but we all recognize that you are sovereign over all things. We want to surrender all of our work to you, Father. Those of us that veer a little bit lazy sometimes, give us energy. Give us diligence. Give us the wisdom to work hard. Others of us that push really hard all the time, but maybe we lack some wisdom. We're, not, we're working hard. But we're not working smart. Would you surround us with wisdom? Give us the ears to hear, to listen, and maybe shape a little bit of what we're doing for of the betterment of those that you've put in our care, especially our own families at home. As we close in the song of worship, we lean on you for the help. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.